Hello again, New York Rangers fans, and greetings from the great state of New York. This is episode 76 of the New Ice City podcast, and I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network. I just landed back on my flight returning home from Tampa a couple hours ago, worked out pretty well, got in before noon, was able to get home, have some lunch, finally feeling a little settled and relaxed, and now I'm able to do the podcast at a relatively early hour and then hopefully get some rest for the rest of the day because it looks like we could once again be in for a long series. Big surprise there, folks, but the Rangers and the Tampa Bay Lightning are tied now at two games apiece in this Eastern Conference Final. We're guaranteed to get at least six games. I don't think anybody will be surprised if this one ends up going seven. And it just feels like it's a similar story with this team in each round. Look really good for some games. Have a couple games where they make you question some things. They find a way to bounce back. Ups and downs, ups and downs. I have to be honest with you, I'm feeling torn. I don't really have a strong gut feeling at this stage about which way this is going to go one way or the other with essentially it being a best out of three series now from this point forward. Part of me, of course, is thinking we've seen this act before. It would be foolish, I think, for anyone. And I had you know, I had some fun at a couple of people's expenses on Twitter during game four when, of course, the panic buttons and the sirens are starting to sound as that game was slipping away from the Rangers and it became obvious that they were going to lose. We've been down this road before. There is no reason to panic. And I can tell you, talking to the players after the game, and the Rangers trotted the majority of their leadership group out there. I think a lot of those guys wanted to talk and wanted to express a certain sense of calm and confidence that this is nothing that they can't handle. They've handled situations that are worse than this before, which is what guys like Artemi Panarin and Chris Kreider and Mika Zibanejad and Jacob Truba all pointed out after that Game 4 loss in Tampa on Tuesday night. And they seem very confident, especially knowing that potentially two out of these last three games are at Madison Square Garden on home ice where the Rangers have won eight playoff games in a row now. They're eight, I guess you could call it eight zero and one because the only loss was that triple overtime game, the very opening game of the playoffs against the Penguins. So technically they don't even have a regulation loss on Madison Square Garden ice in these playoffs. They've been down three to one in a series. They've been down 2-0. They've been down 3-2. They were in the previous round against Carolina. They did not have home ice advantage in that series, and yet they still found a way to pull it out. So adversity does not phase this team. We know that. We should know better than to start writing their obituary at this early stage of a series that is still two games to two and pretty much a toss-up up in the air for either team to seize control of moving forward. A trip to the Stanley Cup Final, where we know the Colorado Avalanche are waiting after they swept the Edmonton Oilers. The Avalanche look like a really, really formidable team to to play right now, but we've said that about every opponent the Rangers have played. Again, questioning this team, questioning whether they can overcome the odds is not a great game to play based on the recent history. We know what this team is capable of, and we know that we should never, ever, ever count them out. A trip to the Final remains a very real possibility, and I'm certainly not doubting this team's resilience. But 
with all that being said, the other part of me is wondering how much longer can they continue to crawl back into these grueling series. It just seems like every night something new is happening. Each round seems to get tougher. Each passing game comes with more wear and tear. I'll I'll, I'll paint a scene for you guys here. The setup for the media at Amelie Arena in Tampa, they they have an interesting setup specifically for the playoffs because they're anticipating a bigger media presence. It's super convenient. They basically lined up these tables with electrical outlets, and, and it's almost under kind of like a tent on the ice level of the arena. It's right across the room from where the press conferences are happening, so it makes it really easy for us. We can run right out of the press conference room, get to the table, start writing immediately. So that that effort is definitely appreciated from the people down in Tampa, at least from this reporter's standpoint. And what we're also we're kind of intermixed with everybody down there. So, you know, you got the cooks in the kitchen who are running back and forth and getting all kinds of stuff done. You've got all kinds of PR staff. You've got all kinds of security. And you also have the players constantly coming back and forth. So we're seeing the players, you know, every day coming in and out of the arena. And it's been striking, especially after game three when the Rangers took took a beating for sure, at least in terms of, you know, some shots that were blocked and some injuries that happened. You see the players coming in and out, and there are multiple guys who are walking slowly, walking with a limp. Barclay Gaudreau looked like he was in a lot of pain after blocking that shot in Game 3 on the same left ankle that we know that he hurt earlier in the playoffs. I mean, what what are the chances of that happening, and, and what just a warrior he has been. I know that word has been overused talking about him and lingering a lot, but it's fitting because this is a guy who I'm sure it's instinct in the moment, but this is a guy who shows no hesitation with Victor Hedman, probably one of the most powerful slap shots in the league lining up to take one. And he throws that same left ankle back up in the air to block a shot. It hits him pretty square. You could tell immediately he was in tremendous amounts of pain and he was definitely walking with a significant limp coming out of the arena that night. Same thing for Ryan Strom. Same thing for Ryan Lindgren. Then Philip Heedle gets injured in game four. So it's like the walking wounded. It really shows you these guys are out there skating, playing hockey at the highest level. And they're clearly, clearly not 100%. So I think that setup almost, I mean, we were very aware of these injuries, obviously. You, you, we watch every game. You see when they happen on the ice. You know that these guys are dealing with all kinds of stuff at this time of year. But it, it almost sets it in your mind even more to, to see them hobbling out of the arena after the game as well. And then by the time we get to game six on Saturday, which will be back in Tampa and we know will definitely happen now because the series is 2-2, they have to play at least two more. That will be their 20th playoff game in a span of 40 days. They have literally been playing a playoff game every other day for 40 days. So you look at the mounting injuries, and we're hearing now that Heedle and Strom, who did not play in game four, in Strom's case, Heedle came out in the second period, are game time decisions for game five. Although, I'll tell you, my feeling at this point is that both will probably play. I'm sure we'll get into that more, but you never know at this time of year. It's always kind of a guessing game. Strom took warm-ups prior to game four and then determined afterwards that he wasn't 
good enough to give it a go. So these guys are fighting and you have to have so much respect and admiration for what they're going through physically with all of these games and all of the little bumps and bruises, or in some cases, very significant injuries that they're still finding ways to play through. It seems like every day a story about another NHL player comes out or this guy was playing with a high ankle sprain or this guy was playing with a fracture, or the, you know, whatever it might be. We know Gaudreau with that broken left ankle and got back in about 25 days and then gets that ankle hit again. It's just, it's an endless list of ailments for these guys. And the Rangers, from a physical standpoint right now, seem to be in a worse spot than Tampa. Tampa had those nine days before the Eastern Conference Finals started to get right. And we also heard John Cooper come out on Wednesday, the Tampa Bay head coach, and say that now he is not ruling Braden Point, the Lightning's number one center, arguably one of their most important players. I would argue one of the, definitely one of their three or four most important players. I would argue him, Vasilevsky, Kucherov, and Hedman are probably their most important players. He's not ruling them out for game five. I can tell you I'm hearing game six is more likely, but it does sound like the longer this series goes on, the more likely it is you're going to see him. So whether it's five, six, or seven, do not be surprised to see Braden point take the ice at some point which would obviously be a huge boost for the lightning both from an emotional standpoint and just from a straight hockey standpoint because he's such a good player so you see the lightning kind of building it seems to be getting better with each passing game and then you see the rangers who have these mounting injuries and who just have not had any kind of a break i think back to those rangers teams in the 2010 decade, those Henrik Lundqvist-led Rangers teams that always had such good teams, that won President's Trophies, that made it to the Stanley Cup Final in 14, that made it to a couple conference finals, those teams had the tendency to always get into these long, brutal, back-and-forth series, many of them that went seven games, just like this year's team has done. And it always felt like by the time they got to late in the playoffs, and they had been going through it for a month, month and a half, whatever it might be, that they were just worn down and eventually you run out of gas. And so part of me does wonder if the Rangers can keep digging deep. We've seen them get their second wind. We've seen them get their third wind. Do they have a fourth and a fifth in the tank? That is going to determine whether this team wins the Stanley Cup and keeps marching on or whether This magical run, which at this point, no matter how it goes, is going to be viewed as an overwhelmingly positive thing for the franchise, whether it comes to an end maybe sometime in the next week. You know, it's it's going to be fun to watch. It's going to be very intriguing and and we're going to have to wait and see. But I, I am torn right now about which way I think it's going to go. Do they find yet another way to rally or are the lightning too much? Because, you know, the other thing you have to acknowledge is that Each passing round, not only is there more wear and tear, but you're also stepping up in competition. And again, the Lightning, to me, have gotten better in each game in this series. A lot of people are going to talk about the home ice thing, which is absolutely a factor based on the evidence that we've seen so far in these playoffs. It happened in the last season, in the last series with Carolina. It's happening again right before our eyes in the series with Tampa, where the home team has won every game so far. And and the difference for the Rangers in this series is, is that they get to play four games at home, potentially, where the Lightning only have three. So if they can continue to hold serve, they're going to get by. They're going to find a way to do it. But 
it just feels like this Tampa team has gotten better each game. And if they continue to build that way, you know, they're a very, very, very dangerous team for a host of reasons. And you can just look at the last two Stanley Cups with their names engraved on it to prove that. So it's going to be a grind for the Rangers to win this series. And they're going to need to play better than they did in Tampa. They had a chance to steal game three. Game three, they were right there. It was a 2-2 game late. They had a 2-0 lead in that game, but you felt it slipping. They ended up allowing 51 shots on goal in that game. So it's going to be really hard to win in the playoffs if you're allowing that many shots. Now, we could talk about how many of them were high danger. A lot of them were from the outside. Igor can handle that. That's all fine. But every shot, you hear the Rangers talk about this all the time, every shot opportunity, even if it looks like it's an easy save or it looks like it's not a really dangerous play, there could be a rebound or there could be a deflection or something crazy could happen. So letting them get off 51 shots on goal, attempts was even higher than that, that is, that's not usually going to be a recipe for success. And the Rangers didn't generate nearly enough offense themselves in that game, aside from the power play, which was pretty good in Tampa. But five on five, they did not score a single goal in either game in Tampa. So that's obviously something that's going to be talked about now because we had seen the offense really come out of its slumber in those final two games against Carolina. And then in the first two games of this series, it felt like they found something. It felt like they weren't dumping and chasing as much. They were moving the puck with more purpose. I know we talked about that a lot last week. They seemed to be connecting more. They seemed to be just moving the puck with more of an idea of what they want to do, setting each other up changing the sight line for the goalie, which is something that Chris Kreider talked about a lot after game four. He felt like they made things too easy on Vasilevsky because not only were they not shooting enough, he said they were too hesitant. They were trying to look up and pick their spot rather than just letting it go quickly, which he felt like needs to be more of a priority. But also he said not changing his eye level, not making him look east-west, not not giving him enough to process in the lead-up to the shot. So I thought that was an interesting comment from Kreider after the game. But I think it's true. If you look at the if you look at the scoring chances for the Rangers in these two games in Tampa, they didn't generate a whole lot of them. And, and again, they had no goals at even strength. They still had a chance to win game three. Andre Palat, who has been really good for the Lightning in these last two games, ends up scoring the game winner. Nikita Kucherov had a great pass to set him up in that spot. And then game four was much more lopsided. The Rangers were only credited with four high-danger scoring chances, according to ClearSight Analytics, which is not nearly enough. We, we know we just touched on the even strength issues, and, and it just looked like Tampa was more in control. They were not giving them much. It felt like the Rangers were not able to get to those high-danger areas. It felt like the Tampa Bay forecheck was getting better. It felt like Tampa Bay was doing a really good job of trapping and clogging things up in the neutral zone. And it also feels like Vasilevsky has been getting better in each one of these games. I don't think he's had an outstanding signature performance where you feel like he robbed the Rangers however many times in a game, but he's made some really quality saves. He's been really steady for them in the last two games, almost had a shutout in game four. So 
wasn't tested a whole lot, but I believe he made 34 saves, so that's not that's nothing to to sneeze at either. He he he's playing better as well, and we know that the goalie advantage, the distinct goalie advantage that the Rangers had in the previous two series is not going to exist here. And the more confidence Vasilevsky builds, the the more worried you get about what he's capable of. We know he's capable of being one of, if not the very best goalie in the world. So a lot of things are going in Tampa's favor right now. And it's hard, frankly, for me to overstate how important I think Game 5 is. Gallant, as I mentioned, is calling Strom and Heedle game-time decisions. I would be surprised if either one of them doesn't play, but you never say never. You know, everything's so secretive with the injury news all year round for the NHL, but especially at this time of year. So we don't know how severe what either one of those guys are dealing with is. This is not confirmed by any stretch, but I've heard from a couple people that it's a groin pull that Strom is dealing with. And you could see the way that he landed when he had that injury. Palat shoved him kind of gently from behind during game three. And the way that he landed, it looked like something grabbed or pulled. And then he came off and he was really favoring that right leg. So a groin pull or some kind of pull seems to be a pretty logical explanation for what he has going on right now. Heedle, I'm not really sure what happened to him. He took a hit from Hedman into the boards during the second period. Nothing glaring looking back at that replay jumped out to me where it looks like he got hurt in a certain spot. The Rangers are calling it upper body, but we've seen how tough these guys are, and we've seen that they usually fight through quite a bit to get back out there. Strom was obviously close to playing in game four because he took warm-ups, so I would expect those guys to play, but you never know. You could end up seeing Kevin Rooney or even another guy get inserted back into the lineup if need be, and that would obviously not be a great thing for the Rangers. But you also don't want those guys playing if they're going to be compromised and they might hurt you in other ways too. If they are not going to be able to be effective, you can't just throw them out there just to throw them out there. So that's something I'm sure they're weighing internally as they prepare for Game 5. But Game 5, the winner of this game... I believe, is completely in the driver's seat for the rest of the series. If the Rangers win, then they have two more games to get that fourth win. They know that Game 7 would be back on home ice. That would extend their winning streak to nine games at Madison Square Garden in a row. So you feel great about the Rangers' chances that they can bounce back from these two losses in Tampa, show that that resilience that has become such a part of who they are. And so if the Rangers win game five, then they would probably be the team that I would think is going to win this series. But if the Lightning are able to keep building and keep playing better and not make it about home ice, just make it about one game to the next, we're stacking a better effort on top of a better effort on top of a better effort. Well, then if they can steal one on on MSG ice and then they only have to win one of the next two and then we're going back to Tampa for game six, well, then... I would have a really difficult time picking against the champs in that situation. So, again, I can't overstate how important I think Game 5 is. And I kind of think the team that wins Game 5 will be the team that wins this series. So, that's a little little extra drama for you or a little, maybe a bold statement. But I I don't even know how bold it is. Some of you might think I'm stating the obvious. But either way, huge, huge game at Madison Square Garden on Thursday night. And with that... I am flying solo today, as I usually have been doing on these travel days, because it's just a lot to juggle, as you guys know, as I've explained before. So 
we are going to dive directly from this opening segment into your questions, and I'm going to try to run through as many as I can and and see what we talk about, see what comes up. So I'm going to go in blind on that in just a moment, and we'll see if we can have some fun here. All right, let's do some questions from you, the fans. And I quickly started scrolling through this, and a couple of you have me cracking up already. Christopher Calzone wrote, when will the pain end? Susie QH wrote, why is this happening? <laughs> but there's also, so there's some doom and gloom in here, but there's also, there's also a few people that are, when, so Matthew Schmidt wrote, when they win the series, who is accepting the trophy? So, so we've got both ends of the spectrum here. We've got the people that are wondering about who will be the first player to hoist the Stanley Cup trophy in a couple weeks, and we've got some people that look like they're planning for the offseason. So we'll see where this takes us with all of these mixed emotions. X here wants to know, should the Rangers do something like Bread, Z, CK, so that would be Panarin, Zibanejad, Kreider, and use the kid line as line number two? They need a minutes increase as they've been by far the best five-on-five line and the top players could use a spark. Sorelli's line has shut them down. Then Cop, Vetrano, Strom on the third line. X, I have to tell you, if that is your real name, that I I have wondered that myself. I wrote during the Carolina series, if memory serves, a few different options where if Gallant wanted to shake things up to spark the offense, the different routes that I thought seemed logical for him to go. And that exactly what you just wrote is one of them. Load up the top line with your three best forwards, give the kid line more minutes as the second line, and then let Cop, Vetrano, Strom, or even if you wanted to maybe swap Vetrano and Mott potentially to get a little more defense on there, let let them roll as your third line with some veteran presence, with some speed, with some defense. And I think that that would make a lot of sense. I think that that would be an intriguing way to go. I absolutely agree that the kids do need more minutes. Although Heedle's injury throws a big wrench in those plans because even if he does play, is he going to be able to handle a heavy workload? I don't know for sure. So that certainly complicates things in that regard. But if he's healthy, I absolutely agree that they need more minutes We've talked about this before. I think one of the big things is defensive situations. They're not going to throw them out there, especially when a faceoff is coming because Heedle is still like in the low 30s as far as his faceoff percentage. He might have creeped up to like 35%, but that's still that's still not nearly good enough. So I don't think he wants them losing any big defensive zone draws and then getting pinned in their own zone for a long shift, which is a legitimate fear for sure. But without question, at five on five in terms of generating scoring chances and the energy that they bring every night, the kid line should be getting more minutes. But listen, I wrote at the time during the Carolina series when it, when the offense was slumping that they should maybe try something a little more drastic. And what happened? He really didn't do anything drastic. He pretty much stuck with what he had been doing. The one change he made was he went back to the kid line after they had been separated for a few games. And that steadiness, that even keeled hand that Gallant has shown that he has, he never really seems to panic in these situations. He will make line changes in games. We saw that game four. Like if he feels like they're playing poorly and they're probably heading for a loss anyway, he'll shake things up at that point. But to start the game, 
He seems to want to let these guys remain in the spots where they're comfortable. And I think he believes that that sends a message to them that we're not hitting the panic button. We have faith in what we do here. It worked because the offense woke up and played really well for the next four games. So line changes, I think a lot of times are sort of the easy way to think like, okay, maybe this will spark the team. Maybe this will help them change things. Maybe this will create something new or fresh. And there's some merit to that, I believe, at times, but it's not necessarily always going to be the answer. Like what we write up, what I write up in a story or what you guys write up on Twitter, it might look good, but we don't always know how it's going to work. So I don't disagree with you that those line combinations would be intriguing. I would certainly, from my standpoint as a reporter, like to see it. I think that would make for an interesting story. I think that would make for interesting watching. But I kind of think that Gallant is going to keep things for the most part as they have been and then adjust in-game if needed. That has been his tendency throughout these playoffs, and I don't think you're going to see him all of a sudden make wide-sale changes at this stage of the game. So that would be my answer on that. I don't think wide sale makes sense, does it? I meant to say wholesale. As you guys can tell, my brain is a little mushy. I'm also getting over being sick. Uh, Luckily, it only lasted really like two days. Sunday and Monday, I was feeling pretty crappy. It didn't feel like COVID. I've had COVID before, but I I was a little worried and I didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. So I went out and got a COVID test Monday morning just to be sure. Thankfully, that was negative. It felt more like a sinus cold, just like runny nose and discomfort and all that kind of, you know, just not not fun. But luckily, I was still able to work, just blew my nose maybe 500 times. So that's kind of gross. That might be too much information for you guys. But yeah, so that's that's my long winded way of saying sorry if I'm if I'm messing up words here, because I'm still a little sick and a little scatterbrained. Okay, let's keep going here. A lot of these questions I'm seeing are about Sammy Blay. Uh, this guy, super a bit terror. Not really sure what that means, but you wrote, do the Rangers take a chance on Blay now if the injuries to Heedle or Strom keep them out? I asked Gerard Galan about this multiple times, but especially at the beginning of the series. And then again, prior to game four, because prior to game four, When I went out to watch the morning skate, I was struck by the fact that usually the forwards for a morning skate will wear white jerseys and the defensemen will wear blue jerseys. On a normal practice day, and they haven't really had any normal practice days recently, but on a normal practice day, they'll separate the lines by colors. But for the morning skates, especially because they've all been optional recently, they don't group the lines by colors. They just put all the forwards in white. Sammy Blay has always had a different colored jersey, which I know some people call non-contact, but the reality is they have not had a contact practice or never. I mean, they they haven't had a contact practice in a while, but they haven't had a contact morning skate ever. They never hit each other at morning skates. It's just not, why would you hit each other when you have a game in a handful of hours? So I'm a little hesitant to call it non-contact, but I think it's just a way of saying like, be extra careful around this guy, whatever you want to call it. But he was wearing white with all the other forwards prior to game four for the morning skate. So even though Gallant had said to me at the beginning of the series, it's very unlikely was, I believe, the words that he used to describe the chances of Blay 
joining the team or playing in a game this series, I asked him again, listen, he's out there in the same color jersey as the other guys. Does that mean anything? Do you still think there's no chance he's going to play? He once again said it's a real long shot that he's going to play in this series. So I am not expecting him to play. I think everybody needs to use a little bit of caution here as much as on paper, we're getting back to the writing up lineups on paper thing here. On paper, he would look great if he was at full strength, but this guy's only six months removed from an ACL surgery. You need That's a very long rehab process. You need to be really careful. You need to be sure that he is absolutely ready to go before throwing him out there. And then if you decide to throw him out there at this stage of the Eastern Conference Final, where, as we mentioned in the first segment of the show, a loss in Game 5 could be devastating. This is a guy who's going to be rusty. He has not played in a real live hockey game in six months. So what are you really expecting or what can you really get out of him if you insert him into the lineup at a time like this? If they really felt like he was healthy enough to play, then maybe you gear him up and start him for game one of the Stanley Cup final. And again, I think that is also a stretch. But maybe you could do you could live with that and see how he looks in that first game because if you lose one game, game one of the series, it's not necessarily the end of the world. But at this stage, I think it's a really risky proposition. And and I everything that I've heard, including from Gallant himself, suggests that, that Sammy Blay is very unlikely to play in this series. So I would not go getting your hopes up for Sammy Blay. It's great to see him out there. I said that to him in person when I saw him. It's awesome to see you back out there. Definitely looks like he's progressing really well, but ACL surgeries are pretty serious business. And and you're not going to find too many cases where a guy stepped back into action after only six months removed from the surgery. So I know it's a hot topic. I know a lot of people are asking about it, but just proceed with caution on that one. All right. Next question comes from Michelle who wrote, is it time to take Reeves out of the lineup? He really hasn't contributed. He could have fought to motivate the team, but it was Vitrano who stepped up. I I will say that I thought game four was one of the toughest nights I've seen from Reeves. He, he definitely got burned on the first goal that led to the rebound attempt from Maroon that, that got Tampa Bay off to a good start in game four. Took at least one penalty. Might have taken two penalties. I know he was in the box for at least one that was not a great, you know, not a great penalty to take. So for him to play, he, he's got to be doing a couple things because you know there are deficiencies there. You know speed is not his forte. You know he's not going to be a guy who's posting a lot of points, not going to get a lot offensively at him. So for him to be effective in the role that he has, he needs to be an intimidating physical presence. He needs to make the opposing team's defensemen pay when they're retrieving pucks behind the net. He needs to make them have fear in their hearts when they go back there to get a puck and be looking over their shoulder. He's told us that himself. He knows that that's his role. Everybody knows that that's his role. And I don't think we've seen him quite as physical as maybe we did at some points earlier in the series. The fighting thing, I personally give him some credit because I think that he's in a lot of situations where the easy thing to do would be to drop the gloves and fight. But I think that he understands that taking a bad penalty, especially if he gets hit with an instigator penalty, could be very 
costly for the Rangers in a tight game. So I think he's been pretty disciplined as far as that goes. Obviously, again, he got called for a penalty in game four. And, and, and that is something that you, you don't want to see too often out of him. It's going to come with the territory because of the way that he plays on occasion. But he's got to he's got to do his best to limit those, which is why I think you probably haven't seen him drop the gloves yet in these playoffs. Although I did think, I forget which, I think it was game one or maybe game two. It was one of the games at the Garden with Maroon where, where the two of them were jostling for position before a faceoff. And I thought that it would lead to a fight. He ended up taking a penalty on that play for slashing. And it was almost like, well, if you're going to slash the guy and get put in the box, you might as well fight so he also gets put in the box with you. That was a situation that I remember thinking, you know, what are you doing here? But listen, Gallant is really loyal to him. So I think it's going to be hard to get him out of the lineup. And I've also talked on this podcast before about what he means in the locker room. Actually, Ryan Strom the other day was talking about Jacob Truba and how Truba does a lot of these little things behind the scenes from a leadership standpoint, he was even talking about just keeping the group organized and on schedule and making sure that everybody's concerns are voiced properly. So if if some player on the roster has something that they want addressed, a lot of times they'll communicate it to Truba and then Truba will be the guy to take it to the coaching staff. So I, I wrote about Truba actually going into game four. So if you didn't get a chance to check that story, I found some of these little tidbits interesting about how he's evolved as a leader, and you guys know where to find that, loha.com slash sports slash rangers. But Strom said, you know, another guy who does a lot of that kind of stuff is Ryan Reeves. So we know that he stepped up big time as a leader behind the scenes, definitely been a mentor for a lot of the young guys, definitely sounds like he's a guy who can communicate with the coaching staff on behalf of the whole team. And we also know that he's a guy that just fires people up and makes the whole team This is a cliche that we've heard from a lot of players, but feel safer. They really like having him out there with them on the bench, in the locker room. They feel like there is a certain intimidation factor, whether he's fighting or not, that has a trickle-down effect and is present on the other team's minds for a lot of these games. So that's how I know that that's how the players feel about him. So those are the reasons that he's going to stay in the lineup. But if you feel like you need to add speed, You do have Dryden Hunt and Johnny Brodzinski, who are both much better skaters than Reeves, who could turn that fourth line into more of a speed unit. Now, are those guys going to be massive upgrades over Reeves? No, I don't think so. But I do think strategically, if you built a fourth line, let's say with Mott, Goudreau, and then either Hunt or Brodzinski, those are three above average skaters that I think could probably do a better job forechecking than maybe a, a unit with Reeves does. Now, Reeves can forecheck, but the problem is he's going to get beat and he doesn't have a whole lot of makeup speed in those situations when he does get beat. So it's kind of a minor concern, quite frankly. I think if if you're focused on whether Reeves should be in the lineup, I, I don't know if that's going to make a huge difference as far as a win or a loss in a given game. And I do think that those off-ice qualities, the value that he holds in that locker room and the respect that he holds in that locker room is a legitimate reason to consider keeping him in there. But I won't disagree with you that I don't think he's been very effective on the ice in this series, and the Game 4 was a tough night for him. And if Gallant did decide to make a change, whether it be Hunt or Brodzinski, I think those would be the two obvious choices, that... You know, you certainly wouldn't get an argument from me at this point either. So, but again, 
this is not to me going to make or break or decide this series for them. All right, let's keep going here. See if you have been answering questions in here. AJNY21 wants to know, how does Gerard Gallant get Panarin going? I don't think putting him with Mika works. Once they went back to the Vetrano-Mika-Kreider line late in the third period, they seemed to be pushing. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of running out of ideas for Panarin at this point. We had X, uh, who opened up the questions here, touch on the idea of putting him with Mika and Kreider. I don't think that that is the worst idea And I do think that maybe starting the game that way versus just going to it in a late game, your trailing situation, it's not, I don't think they're going to have as much chance for success as if you tell them, hey, I'm going to give you an entire 60 minutes together, go out there and see what you guys can do. But I I just don't think Galant is going to go that way. So the line tweaks, I I don't know if we're going to see anything from, from that perspective. Panarin continues to be good on the power play. It's just at even strength, you're not getting enough out of him. I added it up for that stock report story that I wrote prior to game four. Panarin going into that game had seven even strength points in the playoffs so far. Now they've played 18 games. So he has 18 games under his belt in these playoffs and only seven even strength points. That is not nearly enough. There's really no way to sugarcoat that. And I do think that Panarin has not been quite as bad as some people make it out to be. I actually thought the first two games of the series, he did look pretty dynamic and look more like himself, not 100% like himself, but more like himself. But he's had way, way too many quiet nights in these playoffs. And if the Rangers end up going out in this series, I think he's going to be one of the guys who people spend a lot of time talking about. He's a tremendous regular season player. And we have seen him have success in the playoffs at previous stops. Not not huge amounts of success, but little spurts of success. So I don't know if I want to jump to the conclusion that he cannot be an effective playoff player, but he certainly seems to have more difficulty doing his thing and keeping the puck on a string and and making his plays and all the cross-ice passes and all the brilliant things that we know that he can do on the ice There just doesn't seem to be enough room for him to make all that happen in these playoff settings. So maybe there are adjustments that he needs to make. And I think this is an internal battle that he's been having throughout these playoffs. How much does he need to open things up and take risks versus how much does he need to make sure that he doesn't hurt the team with a really costly turnover? We've talked about that before. I wrote about that during the Carolina series when I thought there was the one day where Panarin really opened up and spoke on the subject that was the the stupid shit quote day that I know got a lot of play and I appreciate his honesty I really do I mean Panarin is a guy who I think is very reflective very thoughtful and I I think is usually pretty upfront and and I appreciate him doing these interviews in English when I know he's not always comfortable doing it especially now during the regular season it's it's much better when there's just a few of us there that he's comfortable with and he knows I think with all the national media there now and the growing media presence, he's much less comfortable, it seems to me, doing these interviews in English because he just he just doesn't know all these reporters as well. But, you know, for me, it's a tough situation because I'm I don't know if there's anything strategically that you could say, well, if the Rangers made this change, all of a sudden Panarin would break out. No, I just think he needs to figure it out. And I don't lack faith 
that he's a smart enough guy to do that. But it's been a slog for him in these playoffs. There's no way to sugarcoat it. On that stock report that I wrote, I had him as one of the guys who I think has been volatile. He's been up and down, not consistent enough for the Rangers. And if they don't win this series, as much as it will still, in my mind, be a very, very, very positive outlook for them moving forward and a very, very, very positive outlook on how this season went, very much exceeded expectations, very much took everybody on a magical run, very much showed that they have the makings of a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. Panarin's a guy who you need to see more out of and you have not seen enough in these playoffs if we're being completely honest. So that that would be my my way of answering that question. I don't really have a specific answer for you on how to get him going, but he has not been going enough, I think, in the opinion of most people. I mean, Gallant has been protective of him, but I think if you gave him some truth serum, he'd like to get a little more out of him. Seven even strength points in 18 games for the guy that was your leading scorer in the regular season. That definitely feels like a bit of a letdown. Okay. Jeffrey Brauner wants to know, if Hedl and Strom are out, what are the chances that Gautier draws in? His size, his size speed seems important to at least drive the net and potentially draw penalties. No other reserve has that skill set. I, I do not, I think Gautier is pretty far down in the totem pole, quite honestly, from, from what I've seen. And, and what I know, I, I think you'd be more likely. I think the pecking order right now, as far as the extra guys, would be Rooney, would be the first one to draw in, which I told you guys to expect. And that's what we saw in game four when Strom couldn't play. If both of them couldn't play, I think Dryden Hunt would be the guy. And I can tell you that I saw Dryden Hunt downstairs at Amelie Arena prior to game four, stretching and getting loose with the guys. So he was quite clearly going to be the next guy if, Barclay Gaudreau also couldn't go because there were questions about him heading into the game as well. So I think it would go Hunt. I mean, I'm sorry. I think it would go Rooney, Hunt, then probably Johnny Brodzinski, I think would be third in that pecking order. And he does bring speed. He doesn't have the size that Gautier has, but definitely brings speed. And then I even think that you might be more likely if they really got down to the nitty gritty Gallant, I think, trusts Greg McKaig more than he does Gautier. So Gautier, as far as those extra forwards are concerned, he's fourth or fifth in the pecking order. So I think it's probably a long shot that you're going to see him get in a game, if I'm being honest. Okay. Actually, no, we got another Gautier question in here, but I just answered that one. Let's keep scrolling here. Matt Mulvahill, I hope I pronounced that right, Matt, wrote... Do you get the sense that the front office is looking to re-sign Mott and Cop in the offseason? I know we can't keep everybody, but Cop and Mott are two guys that absolutely should stick around if we can afford to. That's a good question, Matt. And I actually saw someone else in here who I thought phrased it pretty well, too. Yeah, here. Scott S. wrote, please place individual odds on the Rangers re-signing Cop, Vetrano, and or Mott. Rank who you think should be their first, second, and third choices. So this this question from Scott, I think, makes it almost easier to answer and, and it includes the Toronto in there as well because those are the three forwards the Rangers acquired at the trade deadline, three pending free agents, and three guys that ideally you'd like to bring them all back, but we know because of the Rangers' salary cap situation they're not going to be able to. My sense, and I, I touched on this in that stock report story, as far as COP goes, is that he would be the Rangers' preference over Ryan Strom 
right now as far as re-signing a center. We talked last week about Philip Heedle making you reconsider whether maybe he can play in the top six next season, and that would be great for the Rangers if he can. I certainly think that you have to give him some, some consideration because of how good he's been in these playoffs, but that, to me, does not take away the need for them to still sign a center. Now, maybe they think that there is a cheaper alternative to cop out there that they would want as a third-line kind of guy, but I think ideally a guy like Cop would be a perfect fit because whether he's going to play in the second or third line, you feel like he can handle both of those roles. You don't want to sign a, a guy who's quote-unquote strictly a third-line guy, and then if Hedl gets injured or Hedl has any struggles, you're kind of stuck. So I still think the focus is going to be on re-signing Cop. I don't think he's been great in these playoffs, but I do think he's been better than Strom. I think he brings a lot more than Strom to the table as far as the all-around game. And my sense has been that he would probably be the Rangers' top priority out of those guys, the the guys that they got at the trade deadline. They could go in a different direction at center. I think that that is not a possibility that I would dismiss. But I think right now, Cop might end up being their top priority. And I definitely get the sense that Mott would be number two on that list. In a lot of ways, Mott, because he would definitely be cheaper than Vetrano. Mott, I think, makes $1.25 million right now. So he's a guy that maybe the Rangers could lure him back for under $2 million a year. And maybe that's a salary they can afford, especially if they find little ways to shave otherwise. So Mott, I think, would come cheaper than Vetrano, and that certainly works in his favor. But the other thing is Mott, to me, has been, I wrote him on the stock report as one of the guys on the rise. He has been such a great fit for this Gerard Gallant system because of his speed, because of his energy, because of his forecheck, his defense. He just seems to make these little, pesky, high-energy plays every single game. He just seems to always have his nose in the middle of the action. And that's the kind of guy who, come playoff time, especially when you're looking at a fourth-line kind of guy, he can be a real difference maker because he can create a big turnover in a big spot. Or or he he can be a guy who other teams are going to worry about on the forecheck. He can be a guy who uses his speed to, to you know get back on a back check and make a big play to prevent an odd man rush, things like that. So Mott, to me, I think is a guy that it sounds like the Rangers would definitely be interested in coming back. Obviously, they have financial concerns, and they're not going to be able to spend a whole lot of money this offseason. So it's price prohibitive, but I definitely think that there would be a lot of reasons for them to be interested in bringing Mott back if they can make it work. And that would lead me to rank Vetrano as third because I think that he would certainly be more expensive than Mott. And I think those wing spots in the top six, they're going to have to just eventually give guys like Capo and Lafreniere extended opportunities there. They drafted those guys to be top six players for them. They they are really tight on salary cap space. You're not going to see them spend a lot of money on wingers. That's just the reality of the situation. So Vetrano, I think, is probably the most likely guy to go. And, and I would rank Cop and Mott as guys they would like to have back, but it's all going to come down to contract negotiations because every little bit where the Rangers can save is going to be really important for them with the limited cap space that they have. All right, let's see if there's maybe one or two more we want to take. Jim Russo wrote, with two centers dealing with injuries, is there any chance the New York Rangers bring Othman into the mix? I believe he's under contract and had a strong season and was huge for Flint in the playoffs. It's true that Brennan Othman, the Rangers' first-round pick from 2021, 
did have a huge season with Flint, a, a, a really huge season with Flint in the OHL. Definitely opened a lot of eyes around the league. He is, quote unquote, under contract, but the contract is not active yet. They can slide it to a future season. So the Rangers are not going to burn a year of his entry-level contract just to have him for one or two or maybe even, you know, if they make it to the cup final, uh, a week's worth of Stanley Cup playoff games. And they're not going to throw an 18, 19-year-old kid into the playoffs uh, for the first time in this kind of setting. Now, Othman is certainly not an option for them from anything that I can tell. And I, I haven't even asked around about that much because logic just tells you that. But I, I have been under the impression and have heard for a long time since they signed for that entry-level contract months ago that that they are not going to start that contract this season. Next season is going to be interesting because he's not AHL eligible and he's already seemed to be proving everything that he needs to prove in the OHL. So what are you going to do with him next year? I don't necessarily think they're looking at him as a guy who's definitely going to make the NHL team. I think that would really, really have to be earned in training camp. And I still think it's kind of a long shot that you'd see him just one year after being drafted, go right into the NHL. But Sending him to the OHL is also like sending him to a place where he's already kind of proven everything he needs to prove. So next year will be interesting with Othman, but you're not going to see him in these playoffs. I would not I would not go getting your hopes up for that. All right, John Patrick Gatta wrote, Try to explain the Jekyll and Hyde on-ice persona of this team. Knew there would be pushback from Tampa Bay at home and down two, but the Rangers looked completely undisciplined and forgot everything it did correctly in the games one and two. Can you explain the team's approach? Many are baffled and angry by the frequent dump and give puck away rather than set up to be chased in the ozone or chipping the puck out and giving it away rather than passing to a teammate. Well, John, the Jekyll and Hyde thing, that's kind of been this team's personality all season. They have stretches of really good games and then they have clunkers every now and then. But the other tendency of this team has been they always bounce back, which is what we talked about a lot in the beginning of the show is that they can look bad for stretches and you can have all these concerns and then somehow they always find a way to alleviate those concerns. So I would not discount that at all going into game five. I also would not discount though what I spoke about at the beginning about injuries and then being tired. Now they're not going to want to make those kind of excuses, but I think for a lot of players who have never, ever, ever come close to playing this many games, it is, it is a real thing. It is definitely a real thing. So I think they're worn down for sure. And I think they're going to have to really dig deep to find that level of energy that you're saying that they need to compete with a team like Tampa Bay. I don't know if it's undisciplined or not, but they do seem like they have stretches of confidence where they are connecting on passes through the neutral zone. They are having clean breaks out of their own defensive zone, and they seem to be going into the offensive zone with purpose. Whereas there's a lot of other times where it just seems like they're constantly pinned for these long shifts. They're defending, defending, defending. And then when they do finally get possession of the puck, they're just dumping it and going for a change and giving possession right back to the next team. So I think that is a sign to look for from this team as far as where they're at when game five starts. Do you see them moving the puck well? Do you see them generating chances? Do you see them having clean breakouts? Do you see them moving with speed through the neutral zone and connecting on those passes? Or are they dumping and chasing a lot or dumping and changing a lot? If it's the latter, I think that's not a good sign. And to me, I don't think it's a systematic change. Now, Gallant does 
encourage them to get pucks deep and to dump when you need to dump. But he's not sitting there and telling them to dump every time. It's not like if you have an open man, he doesn't want you to hit him with a pass. So it just looks to me like this team goes through these phases where sometimes they're really connected and it looks really smooth and really good. And other times it looks like they can't get out of their own way. And that's obviously often credit to the opponent as well. Carolina had a smothering forecheck and made them look that way in certain games. Tampa Bay has a pretty good forecheck, but Tampa Bay, I think, plays a really well-rounded defensive game, does a really good job of keeping them to the outside and clogging up the neutral zone and trapping them as well. So it's something they have to fight through. And once they're able to effectively do it and they start building that momentum within the game, then all of a sudden it feels like they're playing faster. All of a sudden it feels like the scoring chances are coming in bunches. So it's more of like, to me, a game-to-game thing. Where's your confidence at? A couple a couple bounces here or a couple plays made in this direction versus plays that go against you, it fuels itself. And all of a sudden you see the whole team start to just have this extra pep in their step. So that to me is, I think, is... is it might sound like I'm oversimplifying, but I, I do really believe there's, that there's something to it. There's just some nights where it feels like they're on their heels and they can't get out of their own way. And then there's other nights where it just kind of clicks. And if you're a Rangers fan, you got to hope it clicks more than it does it in, in these next uh, two or three games, however many it ends up being. So with that, I am going to call it. It's been it's been me talking to myself for a lot here, but talking to you guys. I hope I hope you enjoy the conversation, even though it's just a lot of me. I'm trying to include all you guys as much as I can and answer as many of your questions as I can. We're once again going into another week where the next podcast could be an off-season wrap-up or a season wrap-up and look ahead to the off-season, or we could be previewing a Stanley Cup final. I know which one you guys would prefer. We'll find out in a matter of days which it's going to be. I definitely won't release the next one until this series is over. Game seven, if it were to happen, would be Tuesday. So I think regardless of of which way we go from here, I'm going to be recording next Wednesday and releasing on Thursday. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, I know you guys will be hoping for, for one of those options as opposed to the other. We will see what happens. I will be along for the ride. I will be back in Tampa this weekend. The march continues. The playoff grind continues. We're going to keep trying to have fun with it. We're going to keep trying to provide you guys with the best coverage that we can. But for now, we're going to get some rest. So I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week, and I will talk to you soon.